0: does it mean to be an ally of people of color? Our speaker today is going to address this very uh, controversial and interesting topic. Our speaker, Dr. Joanne uh, Fisk, has been a presenter to SACPA before. Uh, She has been with the University of Lethbridge since 2004 as a professor and uh, coordinator of women's studies. She served as dean of graduate studies from 2006 to 10 and is an Associate VP of Research. Uh, She has her Doctorate in Anthropology from UBC and is a committed interdisciplinary scholar. Uh, While at the university, she has completed several research projects that address cultural and social foundations of racism. She worked with members of our First Nations community of women during the movement of their transition home in Lethbridge, with First Nations uh, leaders in BC to understand Uh, categorization and stigma of women and children in regard to uh, being homeless. uh, Dr. Fisk's teaching specialties include feminist research methods, uh, political economy and kinship, and feminist legal anthropology and feminist theories. Please uh, join me in welcoming Dr. Fisk.
1: Good afternoon everyone and and welcome to SACPA and uh, first of all I would like to thank um, the uh, board and executive of SACPA for inviting me to speak with you today. Um, I'll just give a a little warning to you. Uh, They did so at the last minute. And so I've just had one week to pull together my ideas uh, for this topic, so there there may be some weaknesses that you want to address uh, after I finish speaking. I would also like to begin by acknowledging that we sit and stand on First Nations territory, that this is the land of the Blood Tribe, and I am deeply uh, appreciative of all that they have brought to bear. Uh, My mother and uh, grandmother and great-grandmother and great-grandfather lived in this territory when my mother was young. And she, to her dying day at the age of 99, just two years ago, told me wonderful stories of the peoples of the land. I would also like to say that I personally and enthusiastically welcome those who have left Syria, for the safety and beauty of our country. And I deeply appreciate all of those of you here and those in our city who have embraced receiving individuals who come to us in great distress, where we have the opportunity for families and to thrive and children to grow in the comforts of a democratic nation. However, in saying those things, of course, I recognize that even within our very strong, democratic, multicultural society, we have weaknesses and fissures that lead us to misunderstand others, to seek the exclusion of others from our own social lives, and to Consider others in terms of a group measure, uh, membership rather than as uh, individuals. So, the title that I have before me is a title that was presented to me last week, and two questions that I was asked uh, last week to offer some uh, answers, some probing that may lead us to better understand. What happens when a racism that's been with us for a very, very long period of time, somewhat like hidden, perhaps silent, comes to the fore and causes uh, rancor and disaffection within our community? So, the first question that is given to me is why is it so difficult to discuss and challenge racism in dominant communities? And what does it mean to be an ally to people of color? So in this talk today, I'm going to um, address these questions in three stages. First, I will be talking about the context, historical, social, and ideological. And then I'm going to give some sociological explanations of processes and practices of uttering and marginalization. And then I'm going to suggest that we need to move from abstract support to practices when we place ourselves as an ally. So the historical origins of racism, of course, come with the doctrines of colonial right and imperialism. When Europeans first arrived in these lands, they assumed that they had a right to take them to call them their own and in so doing to disenfranchise anyone who was already living here um, they did so in the name of the British Empire and argued that the British Empire its laws its cultural ethos etc marked the apex of civilization this led over the years in this region with regard to the First Nations <clears throat> what was called is the red ticket practices. Knowingly violating the law, the Department of Indian Affairs, in conjunction with other state um, agencies such as the uh, police, argued that people should not leave reserves and move into Lethbridge or travel freely, and therefore anyone leaving the reserve needed what was called a red ticket. This is a nefarious practice with a long social consequences here, and I must say that coming from British Columbia, which I certainly wouldn't label as we non-racist or even dominantly anti-racist, um, I found this a rather big surprise because these red ticket practices were quite localized. Now, as the uh, can you hear? We, me lost, a we hear oh, no, lost the mic. We can't hear. I know we've lost the mic. I'm trying not to shout because that's what I usually do. Yeah, perfect. Uh, Will be okay now? Yep. Thanks, Emily. Yep. So these red ticket practices, as I mentioned, were localized, and of course they were illegal, and in time, they faded away. But Lethbridge was not really content to see the fading away of the containment and monitoring of the movement of First Nations people. And so in Lethbridge, we had practices of vagrancy laws, which made the argument that individuals could not loiter on the streets. Uh, They could not loiter in public places, such as parks. They could not loiter in other places, such as hospitals and yet at the same time it was an accepted practice to bar first nations people from hotels from restaurants and indeed even from visiting in the the hospital this of course has had the historical legacy of racial barriers to housing which persists today and to racial barriers to education we had the nefarious history of residential schools and some um, school Uh, public schools refusing after residential schools to accept First Nations children into their membership. We also have doctrines of social evolution. The notion of the survival of the fittest, as I mentioned, the British um, often argued from the 1880s onward to today, that their civilization is the apex of civilization, and that linked faith groups with social progress. Most recently, in Canadian jurisprudence that I'm aware of, in 2011, there was a um, what we call the polygamy reference where in British Columbia, a judge was asked whether or not polygamy should continue to be decriminalized. And part of the argument made was that Christian monogamous marriage is responsible for civilization and women's equality, and all other marriages practices are barbaric. So we have that social evolutionary trend persisting today and justified at the highest level of the state. In our current social context, we have a racial tension that is sometimes expressed and very often lived fearfully and privately as a consequence of our changing demographics. In a globalized world, we see that there are peoples coming to this area from regions in the world where they have not come before or have come in very small numbers we have then a sense of individuals coming in and as expressed in much of our public media recently a fear that they are taking over that they're asking for things that are inappropriate thus When we have Muslim uh, community groups asking for specific schools, we're told that they're asking and demanding for too much, even as other faith groups have their own separate schools paid for by you and I and everyone else in Alberta without complaint for the most part. We may argue against private schools, but we don't go out and argue and say, oh my goodness, not private schools of that faith. And so we have those difficulties. We also have difficulties when different linguistic groups suggest that children should study their own languages in school and we say, oh, no, English. We all speak English. And I say, aha, English. Mm -mm. I suffered because of English. I suffered greatly because of English. Why do I suffer greatly because of English? Because I don't know anything else. I was raised in part of British Columbia, where the only other language available to study was French. And my community said, don't stuff that down our throats. So I grew up unilingual, and when I travel the world, I'm lost more often than I am found. We have political unrest at national and global um, levels as we move to globalization, the uh, movement of labor, the movement of goods. We have great anxiety about the ways in which these are incorporated. And indeed, we have many people disenfranchised as a consequence of this political unrest. And we only need to look to the United Kingdom in um, June of this year and the infamous Brexit vote and the underlying anxieties there. Economic stresses I hardly need to highlight as Alberta goes through yet another great transformation in the ongoing boom bus cycle of Canada and its resource economies. All of these create an enormous anxiety and a tendency to scapegoat and to try to point to others. As the cause of our problems or others as a threat to our well-being when we feeling vulnerable in the midst of all of that and looking around the room i think many of you will recognize that there is a tendency for nostalgia particularly amongst my age group and older, we who are in our seventies and beyond, long for those days, particularly the sixties. Remember when we were also pure and moral and we fought every injustice no matter what? We have the romanticized national histories, that it's Christians that make Canada. It's the English, it's the French And oh yes, we have a lot of Americans here, but they're just like us. So that tendency to honor the past through romantic eyes leads us to an even greater discontent, I think, with our present. The ideological context that we are experiencing today arose in the 1980s. Here we have a rhetoric of equality as sameness. I'm equal to a man if I can have and do what a man does. Individuals from First Nations are equal to me if they can live on my street, uh, teach at the university, or better yet, attend my classes, of course. But we resent. The extension of human rights protection as super rights or inappropriate rights for special interest groups when we have newcomers or when we have people who have other differences to us. We say, are they trying to take over? But they came to assimilate. Why aren't they just like me? Can't they go to my church? Can't they belong to my atheist reading group on a Friday night? Whatever our position is, we tend to see the extension of rights as being an unreasonable demand. And we tend to forget that equality means that we cannot, as a dominant society, carry our privilege, but we have to understand our privilege as privilege and rights as rights. We tend to do the same around sexual orientation and around sexual and gender identities. And this is expressed very strongly in the term parental rights. I'm not sure if any of you attended the discussions of our local school district earlier this year, as a school district grappled with changing policies and practice to reach out to communities based on sexual identities, gender expressions, and that whole potpourri of who we are and with whom do we associate freely, equally, and respectfully. And parental rights it was argued, and I thought quite interestingly, on the basis of what parents did not want their children to know, on whom they did not want their children to associate. Not on the parental right to create breadth of experience, to learn challenging ideas, to develop a child who could stand up in the face of bullying. Not on a sense of shared, grounded responsibilities where children learned communities very frequently we label the ideological context today neoliberalism. And with this neoliberalism we have a doctrine that favors individualism and self-directed success. I stand before you a woman with a PhD because I did it all myself. And my parents just rolled over in the grave. But this ideology has Over the sense of a shared community. We have success because we are connected to others. We have a valuation of citizenship through consumerization. It's what I know, not at the foreground. It's what I do, not at the foreground. It's what I own. Do I own my house, my vehicle, a second vehicle? A cottage, a cabin, an airplane, a helicopter. And through this sense of ownership and this valuation of property, we create movements that seem innocent enough but are darkened by a subtext of racism. We have, for instance, in Lethbridge right now, this notion that we're going to take back our parks. Now, when I moved here in 2004, my neighbors told me from walk in golf gardens. And I said, where's that? And they said, it's four blocks from your house. Thank you. And there I went. And I went every day for six months. And I walked, And I sat. And I drank my coffee and read books. And I spoke to everybody in golf gardens. And you know what? It was wonderful. And then I went back to putting my work first but this take back our parks has a subtext that we who own property and live next to a green space somehow own it socially and ideologically and when others come in we can take it back by acting in a way that will move those others out we have a moral dichotomy of accountability versus taxation and shared responsibility. When we have people in our back alleys, in our gardens, in our, 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 we tend to say, I'm not paying taxes to look after them. What, more access to housing? Why can't they do it for themselves? Why can't they go home? Why are they here anyway? Why don't they get a job? this sense then that we resist our own accountability through a shared responsibility for everyone is a mark of this neoliberal ideology and i would argue that very much this masks what goes on in society in terms of the way that we create barriers to others and who we marginalize we have a practice of inferiorization we have marking categories through stereotypes we believe that we can create categories and labels and we can plunk people into it and once we plunk it into them we somehow know them we can know them on who one is And make that far more important than one once does or acts. Plus, if I see someone in a stereotypical category in my park across from my window, the assumption is I can understand who that individual is in terms of moral values, in terms of my safety, in terms of why that individual is in the park. And yet I have no idea why the individual is in the park. Is it a sunny day? Is the park bench comfortable? Are the flowers fragrant? None of this registers when we stereotype. So, this devaluation of overall identity becomes much more uh, significant than specific acts. It gives us the excuse not to care, not to know, and not to take a stance. It's just them, I'm told, just them. The other interesting thing is that in an economic hierarchy, such as we are experiencing in Canada that now, with greater and greater distinction between the haves and the have-nots, what people do in public spaces is wrong, but it's taken for granted in private spaces. And some of you will know from this weekend, some of us faculty members had a party. We could go to another faculty member's house and we could drink. I was free to drink all I wanted, except for the fact I was a designated driver. So I couldn't drink. But in that private space, backyard, front doorstep, home, we could partake in those kinds of activities without censure and indeed, Designated driving completed. I went home, sat in my backyard, and drank a bottle of wine. A little later, a neighbor came to me and said, would you look at that? Look at what? Across the street. Oh, yes, three houses and a little park. (gasps) There were people drinking in the park. Oh, I said, I should have shared my wine. I sat by myself. So when we have these kinds of categories, we have what sociologists will call a master status, where membership in a devalued category overrides all else. We see individuals through the status, and we become blind to their individuality. And this, I think, is at the heart of what I was asked to speak about today. How is it that we don't understand individuals as individuals unless they look remarkably like us? Or if we don't even notice they look remarkably like us? For example, in September of this year, I was walking six blocks from my home with my two dogs and a couple of plastic bags from two local businesses. And a fell. Good luck. Flat on my face, hard on my chest, knocked the breath out of me. My glasses fell, my cell phone scattered. And I realized rather like a young child, I was bleeding. I was bleeding from my nose, inside and on top. I was bleeding from my forehead, my hands, my knees, my legs. And I couldn't breathe properly. So I took a moment, struggled to get my breath back, tried to keep the dogs from licking my wounds, sat down against a tree, and the neighbor the house beside me came out and shouted at me to get away told me I didn't belong there I bled I sat I sat I bled I struggled for breath checked my wounds and I did what all good anthropologists do I started to take a few field notes yep a little research as I sat there one of the neighbors sent the dogs of her property out next to a fence and barked and said, if you don't move, the dogs will come out. Well, of course, we would have had a dog fight of huge proportions. And then when the other neighbors brought by, stepped over my glasses and said to me, quite cheerfully, but disdainfully, don't you know you dropped your glasses? So I can always see shadows. At the best of time, I got my glasses unless I squint and close one eye. I had a fair bit idea that I I'd dropped my glasses. But she didn't pick them up. She didn't help me. And then later, I told the story to many of my acquaintances, and I was asked the following questions. What were you dressed like? Why were you carrying those kinds of plastic bags? They probably thought you had, I don't know, a bottle of wine in them. Ooh, you must have been slipping over my gate. How far away from home are you? Oh, about six or seven blocks. Why didn't you take your truck? Why are you walking so far from home? They must have thought you were a big lady, a street lady. Well, that's entirely possible because very recently I went to a filming of Harold and Maude and while everybody was dressing up like Harold's mother I was complimented for dressing like Maude. For those of you who don't know the movie you know it might not have been a compliment. So, bag lady, me, anthropologist, took notes. So I want now just to move to the idea of of how we continue to create a us versus them we do so because we work in preconceptions we want those preconceptions to be consistent we assume that people who look and sound like us accept our consensus we create silence within our ranks by making situations socially uncomfortable to those who speak up when i tell my stories when i speak up about taking back our parks or about my one little moment as big lady i'm silenced very frequently i don't have a receptive audience so what does it take to be an ally a big mouth it takes standing up, speaking out, being reflective on the language that we use, moving really beyond tolerance to respect. And it takes, above all, including the excluded. Not once in a while, not when there's a crisis, but every day of our lives. Thank you.